God, thank you for your word. And um, sometimes your word is hard to interpret. And there's a, there's a lot of conflict. There's a lot of differences um, in our body and among churches and how we interpret your scripture. And I pray that we can faithfully um, stay with the text and uh, come to conclusions that are helpful and illuminating and um, make us the church that you want us to be. In your name, amen. So I did a lot. My heart is pumping right now because I really don't want to talk about this passage. There's, there's something in me that just kind of want to run away, right? That, wanna, that wants to hide. And uh, I'm going to lower this because I feel some kind of... Um, and so I've done a lot of studying this week on this and my mind is just flowing with stuff, arguments and counter-arguments, Greek... And, uh, you know, uh, a preaching prof once said to me, it's not about, you know, preaching on a Sunday. It's not about showing all of your work. Like, look how smart I am. Look at the breakdown of this Greek. And, like, all these comments, this commentator said this, this commentator said that, and this commentator said that. But the art of preaching is actually doing all the work on your own and studying and preparation and prayer but then delivering something that's very pastoral and something that the church can receive in the most simplest form. And so that's the challenge today. Um, and really, I mean, just to be honest, sometimes when preachers, I do this, get up and say, commentators say, really they say commentators because they don't want to say, this blog writer said, or this person on the radio podcast said. Um, so just know that we're being real up in this place. But if you can hit the, to the first title slide. So we're in huh, strange stories in the Bible. And I think um, this can be, this whole series can be retitled Scriptures That You Want to Avoid and Never Preach About. But finally, you're getting the courage to face. So that's what this this uh, whole series about I would never normally preach on any of these passages and in fact in many 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 churches this particular passage along with uh, related passages 1 Corinthians 11 2 through 16 is very seldom preached from the pulpit but very often argued outside of church and actually very much applied in how the church is run, how roles are, um, gender roles are assigned in the church or in the household between husband and wife. So never preached about because we want to avoid it. I think inherent in that is, hey, we are living in a cultural context where patriarchy or seemingly, seeming patriarchy or hierarchy is not, you know, is not something that we should talk about or uh, is something that we should be uh, is in conflict with current culture and outsiders of the church would be like, whoa, this confirms why I'm not in the church. Um, and so I think that's a reason it's not preached that often. It's not like your best foot forward if you land on one side of this passage. Um, but 
definitely in debates around complementarianism, and I'll get to definitions of this, and egalitarianism, right? Complementary means woman is complement to the man. Man is head over the woman. So in church polity and church roles, that means women are subordinate to men in leadership. It, women shouldn't preach. There's all these applications to that. Or in the household, a husband is over her wife. A husband is dominant over the wife. A woman, a wife should be subordinate to a woman. Complementarian. Egalitarian is we are equal under God. Men and women, both men and women, can be ordained in the church, can preach, teach, prophesy, pray in the church. Um, that's the egalitarian view. And so we see this in different churches. You can probably go down the street to another church or look at their website. You'll only see men on their leadership. You'll only see men on their staff. You'll only see men preaching. You can come down to our church, look at our website. Oh, right now you only have a man preaching, but like you have women in leadership. We belong to a denomination just to get it all out there that has ordained women since 1976. The Covenant Church has ordained women since 1976, and we generally take the posture of called and gifted, right? God can call and gift whoever God pleases, and that's the only qualification of who can pastor, lead, preach, teach, etc. is if God calls and gifts that person. And so... I'm already going to go on my soapbox, but I want to stick to the text. I want to do some work in the text first. Um, so we're going to be talking about head coverings. Amen? Yes. Head coverings. I really want to avoid this. Uh, so this is a controversial subject much discussed in terms of headship, right? You've heard that term headship in churches, like men have headship over women. A husband has headship over his wife. And the word head is actually uh, an ongoing metaphor or theme in this passage. Head, right? Head coverings. Uh, man is head over women, um, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And so in the church, it's discussed a lot. It's controversial. Um, and it's applied in the church. It may not be preached a lot in the church, but it's applied definitely. It's uh one of the most single controversial issues or uh, dividing factors in the church. And in reading this passage, I have several questions. And you may have several questions. What specific situation in the Corinthian church is Paul addressing? What, what's going on? What's happening in this passage um, which Paul is responding to? Secondly, what is meant by head in this passage? Is this referring to headship or authority over? A man has authority or headship over a woman? Or head, and we'll get to this um, later down in the road, kephale in Greek, is this meaning source or origin? As in, woman comes out of man, man comes out of God. Um, in terms of the creation order. So Genesis, birth order, creation order. What are these head coverings that Paul is talking about? There are some people that think, that say that it, there are some commentaries, or blog writers, that say, 
I'm not going to be uh, arrogant in, in my sources. Um, that say literal veils or hairstyle, or literal veils like hats or veils that cover their head. Or is Paul referring to just hairstyles like letting your hair down, having a man having short hair or long hair and a woman shaving her head and having short hair. So is it meaning hairstyles? And who is Paul addressing? Is Paul addressing husband and wives? Is Paul addressing everyone in this specific church? Or is Paul uh, addressing a specific group of people in the church, such as leaders or those who are praying and prophesying during worship? Leaders of worship. And then verse 10, here we go again. Why are angels a part of this? Because of the angels in verse 10. Angels? Like, we talked about that last time in, right? The sons of God, right? Angels? Are these like the sons of God that went w with the uh, daughters of man? Is that those angels? What is, what is meant by because of the angels? This is random. Is Paul pointing to a hierarchy in nature? that is universal and transcends custom and culture? Or is Paul appealing to a cultural uh, propriety, like being having propriety in that cultural context? And does this passage have anything to do with gender roles in the church? Does it have anything to do with women teaching and preaching, as sometimes this passage is used? And today, we definitely have churches that teach from this passage, 1 Corinthians 11, 2 through 16. Um, and they teach that men, or women are subordinate to men. And that men have authority of, uh, over their wives. And also men have authority over women in the church. So women should not teach. Women should not lead in worship. Women should not preach. And yet, these same churches do not demand women wear head coverings or men to keep their hair short, right? So today, it's, it's probably rare to walk into a church, you may find some, to walk into a church where women are wearing head coverings still, right? Or walk into a church where men are like, I can't grow my hair out long. All of them have crew cuts, right? All of them have short hair. You, can't, you won't find that. It's pretty rare, right? So... We've got, to, we've got to think that there's some amount of intuitive cultural kind of leap that people are making, right, with reference to this passage. Because if Paul is saying, women, you have to cover your heads, wear veils, why, aren't, why isn't this being practiced by those churches today? And yet, those same churches may emphasize but women, men have authority over you, right? And this can be one of those passages growing up in old-time Baptist churches, right? Where it's like, we do it on Father's Day, maybe, if you do preach on it. And it's that kind of, uh-huh, right? Like, the men are like, uh-huh, see? That's why you should listen to me at home. I'm the bottom line. I have authority, Right? And boom, boom, boom. It's like growing up with my dad, right? Children, obey your parents, for this is right. 
And then I'd respond back, and fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Ha, 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 ha. Yeah. Right? We go back and forth, and we're like, he's talking to you, honey. He's talking to you, honey. Kids, he's talking to you. And we like to throw scripture around like, you know, scriptural weapons. But I want us to consider how we read scripture and how we read the Bible. Next slide. And yeah, that's like, and does it matter? Does it matter? We have some traditions that would approach scripture in a fundamentalist way, meaning the literal sense of the scripture. What is the scripture saying? And there's a lot of strength in that. And um, the exegesis of the scripture, all of that. And there's, there's other, back, you know, other traditions and in scriptural interpretation that'll look at the overall, what is the meta-narrative of scripture? It's all about the salvation story. It's all about everything points to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Like, how do we look at the whole story, the love story of God? How do we read the Bible? Does it matter? Being an English major and a poet, right, I have an approach to how I approach scripture and how I preach scripture. I admit, like, the logical stuff, the Greek stuff, the breaking down of stuff, you know, I like that. I like analyzing it, but that's not my first approach. My first approach, because I'm a trained English lit major, is, whoa, what, what are the movements? What are the themes? What are the images? What is the context? Right? What is, what is the feeling that these words invoke? What type of language or diction is this person using? Is this poetry? Is there some sort of structure in this passage? Is there a chiasm in here? Is there a parallelism going on? And so that serves me well. I like to approach scripture in that manner. And that also involves like an a literary uh, criticism of scripture involves history. Like, what is the history? What, what's the voice? What's the context of what's going on? What you won't get from me, usually, unless it's a short passage, is a verse by verse, right? Verse 2, what does it mean? Verse 3, what does it mean? Verse 4, what does it mean? I just, I know there's strength to that. There's, there is strength to that. But... I like to see, I want to see the whole, the holistic picture. And so for me, the first thing I do when I approach 1 Corinthians, oh, we got to be before that. First thing I do when I approach 1 Corinthians 11 is what is this passage embedded into? What is 1 Corinthians about? What is Paul talking about in 1 Corinthians? Are you with me, church? And I think one of the major themes in 1 Corinthians that Paul is kind of hammering into the church is unity. Unity. What is separating us from one another? And, when you, and what is separating us from God? And when you look around at the world outside the church, we live in a divisive world. That's what Paul is saying. And we have divisive tendencies. I don't know if that relates to us. We have divisive tendencies, but 
but our witness as the body of Christ is in our reconciliation with one another and our reconciliation with God and that's expressed in our unity in the midst of diversity. That's what Paul is talking about. And so right before this in chapter 10, Paul talks about um, eating, right? He talks about, you know, he tells believers they can eat from any of the food in the market and any food put before them at an unbeliever's home unless the non-believer first tells them that it was offered to idols. And the emphasis here for Paul is that this instruction of saying it is allowable to eat is for the sake of the unbeliever and not the believer, right? If what you eat is going to cause this non-believer to stumble, then like consider that against whatever rules or traditions you have. Consider that for the sake of the unbeliever. Are you with me, church? After this passage, what do we get? We just did it. We just lived it out in communion. It's Paul talking about the tradition or the, the worship practice of communion and he's chastising the church at Corinth because he's saying, you know, the, communi the communion meal is supposed to be a family meal that everyone comes to. And yet some of you are leaving out the poor because you live in rich homes and you're supposed to host everyone but you're inviting just your closest friends other people of high society to share in this love feast and some are going hungry, the poor are going hungry, while others are being fed. And so the point of communion, once again, is the unity of the church in the midst of social economic disparity, in the midst of actually multicultural differences. Paul is talking about the table of Christ is about unity in the midst of diversity, and you guys are spitting on that. And so, what does that tell me? That tells me, when I approach this passage on head coverings, what the heck does this have to do with unity, right? And how we come together in the midst of the world out there. Are you with me, church? Corinth... Uh, as a matter of background, was a multicultural trade hub. It was a place of social, racial, and religious diversity. So uh, for the church, I think a lot of things that the Paul was addressing um, in the church at, to the church at Corinth, uh, he was addressing this tension that they were constantly living in. And the tension was a balance between living in the freedom of Christ, living into this newfound freedom. For the Jewish person, it was, we're free from the law, right? It's not about this, you know, legalistic following of the law, but we have this new covenant of Christ. We have this freedom of Christ. And for the Gentile that grew up in Corinth and maybe grew up um, worshiping gods and other gods and pagan religions, this freedom in Christ was like, oh, I'm free from that and I can live in the love and grace of Jesus Christ. 
But the tension is living in this freedom in Christ while not being a stumbling block to those new and growing in the faith. Right? You are free in Christ, but don't just do anything. Right? And so I, I was kind of trying to think of, you know, a modern day equivalent. And I, I thought of, so Paul's talking about dress or appearance or how you're being dressed. So what, what would that equate for us? Because really, short hair, long hair, hats, no hats. I mean, some churches you may say, don't wear a hat. And we, you know, we kind of think wearing hats indoors is not respectful. So I was trying to think, like, is there anything, right? At Renew, you pretty much come as you are, right? As long as you're wearing something, right? Don't come not wearing anything. Um, but, right? And we're talking about propriety, right? But let's go even deeper. What if I came out with a red shirt that had MAGA on it and started preaching from the pulpit, right? It says, MAGA, I'm a Trump supporter, and I'm preaching from the gospel. You would say, that is inappropriate. Why? Because look at how divided our country is, and you're, you're not supposed to be political in the church. And so, yes, we would say that's inappropriate for the one who's preaching and leading worship to wear a, pol a political shirt, you know, supporting a candidate. Or if I wore a Joe Biden shirt, right? Like that, I wouldn't do that. It doesn't matter where, who I voted for or not. I just wouldn't do that because I know our cultural context. I know our milieu, right? And I know that Renew, we may lean a certain way, but we also want to be a table that is diverse and where people can have their opinions or their ideas and feel that they're welcome, right? And so as a pastor, I need to be respectful of that and appropriate in what I wear. Then I thought, what if I wore a Black Lives Matter shirt? Oh, that's a little, that's a little tricky because I would actually wear that. But that's another, that's another conversation. But anyways... Um, where was I going with that? Pray for me. So, an example of this not being a stumbling block, but living in the freedom of Christ. Um, again, I mentioned 1 Corinthians 10, 25 through 31. Paul tells believers they can eat any food from the market, right? Um, just don't be a stumbling block for the unbeliever. Also, as a background in Corinth, uh, like I said, there is a diversity of religious, religious plurality, religious diversity. Uh, relig uh, it was a multicultural place, different races, different religions. Um, and at the center of worship, pagan worship in Corinth, was the worship of Dionysus, um, gods like Dionysus and Demeter. Um, so in these cases, um, some commentators <laughs> mention that there were men masquerading as women in the temples and women masquerading as men, right? So women would shave their heads and, and worship in the temple, uh, in these pagan temples, and men would put on dresses and uh, have long hair and um, look like women as they're um, going into these temples. Um, 
And so that's one kind of cultural context that Paul may be speaking into. I'm not landing on one way or another. But he may be saying, hey, when you're being, having freedom in Christ, so the, the women, right, are coming and leading in worship and letting down their hair, right? Because it may have been uh, appropriate for women in Corinth to tie up their hair, to tie their hair up. But in the church, in this freedom in Christ, they're letting out their hair and they're prophesying and they're singing and they're praying. I'm free in Christ. But Paul is saying, but this may affect your witness. So that's one kind of interpretation or one uh, way that people are looking at this. And Galatians 3.28, do you know that passage? There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave or free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So with this background in Corinth, this pagan background, this worship of Dionysus and Demeter, right? They would have clung to this model in Galatians. Oh, there's no male or female in Christ. And say, hey, we get this. We understand this. We've practiced this before. So in worship, expressing freedom through the letting down of hair or the men growing out their hair is, yeah, we're living out what Paul has been preaching and teaching us there's no male or female in Christ, right? What Paul is saying in this passage, no, no, no Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, is not saying an erase, erasing of all identities, right? What Paul is saying is you are all equal in Christ. You are all sons and daughters in Christ. You all come to my table on an equal, unified standing. Not an erasing of lines. Are you with me, church? Oh, you don't have to be with me. <laughs> so is Paul arguing then against the abolishing of male and female differences? Is he saying, hey, in the church, we need to maintain the natural created order of male and female, right? There is male, there is female. And this blurring of these differences is creating a stumbling block for those who are new to the faith, who are coming into faith? Or is he arguing for the preservation? Is he arguing for the abolishing of male and female differences? Or is he arguing for the preservation of male and female differences for propriety's sake? So this is another thing going out, going through this, because Paul starts off talking about, right, God is the head of man, Man is the head of woman, right? This natural order of things. And it looks like a hierarchy. It sounds like a hierarchy. It sounds like he's talking about creation, like this was a cre creation. More uh, universal, bigger than just culture, right? It sounds like that. So he's talking about that, and then he moves to head coverings, right? Which seems to be a cultural, traditional thing. And then he moves to, what do you guys think? And then he moves to tradition, like this is the apostolic tradition. So we need to discern what, are, what is universal and what, is Paul, you know, what part of what Paul is saying is cultural or 
uh, tradition for propriety? Is it about propriety? Like, the, um, are we talking about it doesn't look good if you do this, if you let down your hair, or if you don't, if women, you don't veil yourself. And men, if you grow your hair out long, it doesn't look good for the church. Is that what he's talking about? Or is he saying, no, this, men are over women, women are subordinate, and this is how you demonstrate that. So, I'm going to get to my buoy. Headship, head coverings, or hairstyles. There are other people that talk about the veils or head coverings in this passage, and they say, oh, it's not head covering, a literal, like, material head covering or veil itself. He's actually talking about hairstyles because later um, in this very passage, he talks about, you know, a woman's hair is her covering, is for her, uh, is for her glory, right? And talks about men shaving their head, or women shaving their head, and men growing their hair out long. So people are like, actually, the words never point to a literal material, like hat, veil. But he's talking about hairstyles. Basically saying, it's not appropriate for men to grow your hair out long, and women to cut your hair in the context of worship, because this will be a stumbling block for people. The second thing, or the third thing is, this word kefali. Um, does this mean head or authority over, or does this point towards origin or source? Does that make sense? So when we, and this is where that headship comes from. So a more traditional view, interpretation of kefali or head is, Man has head, is head over woman, has authority over woman, right? Just as God has authority over man. And so there's this, interp there's like, oh, it means authority, head, headship. And that's where you get the headship argument. But other people look throughout scripture, look through the Greek and say, no, the use of kephali, Kefali me is more about origin or source, right? Man comes out of God, woman comes out of man, right? And we see this later after verse 10, later in the passage, Paul says, right, man comes out of God, came out of God, women came out of, women come out of, <laughs> woman, women, woman came out of man, but then, in creation, as you continue in creation, men come out of women. So Paul is clearly, they argue, talking out of created order. Like creation itself, Genesis 2, creation, right? Literally, Adam came out of God. Eve came out of Adam, right? And then later, Paul's like, and then people came out of women. And so... They argue, Paul is saying, it doesn't matter. Like, birth order doesn't matter. You guys are assigning some sort of authority or headship in kind of this order. But later on, he says, it's a mutual, mutual thing, right? Men are not, women are not independent of men, and men are not independent of women because 
Man, women came out of man, but man later came out of woman. Does that make sense? And so he's, that's why it points towards origin and source. But we, in our culture, tend to interpret uh, firstness, right? What comes first? We're always worried about who's in charge? Who has authority, right? Who's my boss? Right? When we go into our company, who is the bottom line? Who's in charge? We have our um, corporate structure, our flow charts. In the church, we're like, who's in charge? Is Pastor Dave in charge? Is the board, is the leadership in charge? Ah, who's in charge? Right? Who's the, who's the big man? Who's the big woman on campus? And I even, you know, the other day, Cammie's, I mean, it's silly. We're, you know, we're a soccer, but they're, they're st- starting to group these six-year-olds into premier and select. And it's like, some of these girls are more advanced than others. We're going to put... And so they're making lists. And so they're making lists. And Cammie's like... I, I won't tell you what group she's in. But Cammie... Not premier. Um, but Cammie is like second to last. And so I'm looking. What, what do you think naturally I'm looking? Oh, is it in alphabetical order? But then I see an S like at the top. I'm like, oh my gosh. They were thinking of her last, right? So that means there's some sort of order. Like they're ranking them, right? And we naturally, oh, did I make this class or this team? And you, they post on the swimming team, right? They post it on the wall on the door in high school and you're like reading the list and your name is first. So you're like, oh, I'm the first one out of, out of the coach's mouth, right? Unless they actually put on the list, this is in alphabetical order. No, this is in num- uh, their number order. We immediately assign hierarchy in our minds. Who is better? Who is best? Who is first? Who is last? Who has authority over the other? Who is stronger than the other? That's our culture. But it is not necessarily the case in the created order, right? Just because Adam was created first and came out of God, and then Eve was created second and came out of Adam, doesn't mean Adam is superior to Eve. Does that make sense? We read it and we want it to say that. We want there to be a hierarchy. We want the, to defend a patriarchy. Amen? And so we want to read in scripture those things that defend our position. Right? Even I'm doing this for sure. There's parts of Paul that are like either way I look at it there's pretty patriarchal language in there. Or hierarchical language. I have to deal with that, you know, as a pastor who's egalitarian. And so, but we, we have to understand that we read our culture into there. By appealing to created order, the created order, reminding the people that they are made distinctly male and distinctly female, Paul is telling believers um, that what's on their literal heads brings honor or shame to their metaphorical, right? To the, to the metaphor of head. And therefore impacts how they witness the gospel in that culture. The question, right? 
Should I cover or not cover? When you're a leader in worship, was really important to how they were witnessing in the Corinth church. Right? It was important to the Christian witness at Corinth. Let's move on. I think I'm way behind. Thanks for being patient with me. There, I told you there's a lot of... Inf- um, the other thing, you guys know what a chiasm is in scripture? No? Chiasm is chi- chiastic structure. X, chi is X in the Greek. But basically what it means is a lot of New Testament writing is structured in a pattern. Like a limerick, for instance, right? So X would be the center, right? And what's above is inverse to what's below. So in, and a lot of people point to first, this passage, 1 Corinthians 11, 2 through 16, as a chiasm. And I broke it down for you. I, I can send this to you in email if you can get to the next. Yeah. So basically, in this case, the chiasm is verse 10. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels, right? So then you have A, B, C, and then on on the mirror side of the X is C, B, A. So if you read it, A will match A2. So A1 is about holding to the traditions, the head of Christ is God. A2 is if anyone wants to be contention about these, contentious about these practices, traditions, practices, nor do the churches of God. Get it? Of God, churches of God, traditions, practices. Uh, now here's all the, the head covering stuff. A man who prays uncovered, dishonors, covered, dishonors. To the glory of God, to the glory of man. C2, the woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. Woman came from man, but man um, is born of woman. B, B1 or B2. Anyways, you get the point? And the reason for the chiasm is that in the middle is the center, right? The thing that we should focus on in which the passage pivots. And so, what a lot of people argue is, there's a shift that happens in verse 10, right? What is that shift? It is for this reason, a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. We won't get to because of the angels right now. Right? And if you look at the new King James Version or the King James Version, they'll have... It's for this reason that a woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. Which goes to, you should wear veils, women. But the NIV says, no, a woman has authority over her own head. See how translations make an interpretive leap. So if we take the NIV and verse 10 and there's a shift, right? You see this hierarchy of the created order and you're like, ah, right? And all the men in the church are going, ha, ha, see, ha, ha. By the way, as a side note, this passage is difficult because it's been used to defend a lot of abuses, power abuses, and domestic abuse, for instance, because, you know, it's just given 
you know, men or patriarchy kind of free, like, I can do whatever. We, we can do whatever, and you just have to submit. And so that's the danger in passages like this. But for me, the chiasm, being an English major, makes a huge difference because a lot of times we emphasize the front end but don't see Paul like laying out and almost subverting himself. So here's tradition, here's the Greco-Roman culture, here's our church culture, but here's the inception of what can be when the Lord, women is not independent of man, nor man is independent of woman. Woman came from, uh, woman came from man, and man is born of woman. Everything comes from God. And you'll see this in a lot of the other passages about submission, that yes, you have this hierarchy, re hierarchical reality, but there's a subversion that happens, right? And the church, frankly, was really progressive or really radical in the ways that it expressed womanhood and manhood and roles in scripture, right? In the church. And so you see mutuality, and you see this in other, uh, other of Paul's passages, is that he always ends with mutuality. We're all fighting over who's in charge, who's large and in charge, who's over the other. But Paul always <laughs> ends, right, on the other side of the chiasm is mutuality, right? We're not independent of one another. We are not, we need one another. We, there's mutuality and everything comes from God. You're worried about man comes from woman, woman comes from man, right? Everything comes from God. And going back to the Trinitarian, right? He, he said above the chiasm that Jesus comes from God, right? Man comes from God, woman comes from man, Jesus comes from God. But we all know that he's not assigning value, right? Like, Jesus has his origin from God the Father, but as Trini good Trinitarians, we don't believe that Jesus is sub inferior to God, right? What do we believe? That in the Trinity, we believe that God is three persons in one, individual but equal persons. Amen? So, Jesus and God are one. Not that just because we say God, Jesus flowed because Jesus is the son of God, right? That doesn't mean that Jesus is inferior to God, but they're one and the same. That's what we believe. So if we believe that, we don't want to undermine, right, what's true. In, other, in, in another part, um, Paul says in this passage, uh, man is the image of God. Right? And woman is the image of man, or something like that. But what do we read in Genesis 2? God created humans, both men and women. He created them in his image. Right? We know it's both men and women. It's not, you came out of me, haha, -ha. that means I'm better. Are you with me, church? So what he's taught, the, the, at the end of it all, Paul is saying we need to be careful that we just don't erase, right, these gender roles or gender kind of characteristics because of our witness. But at the end of it all, we're interdependent. And we submit to one another. And there's a mutuality. That's the radicalness of the table, 
right, of communion. That we lay down everything that we have and we come to the table because of who God is. Amen? And then one quick thing about preaching or teaching. In all of this, does Paul ever say, women don't continue to pray or prophesy? No, the whole context of this is men and women, when you are prophesying and praying, do this, this, this is appropriate, this is appropriate, this is appropriate. Right? The women are in this church praying and prophesying. Later on, Paul makes a list. Apostles, prophets, teachers, right? According to Paul's list, you would think that prophets, right, are second to apostles. Basically, they're preachers, they're pastors, they're preaching, right, the word of God. They're discerning the word of God for the people. Women are prophesying. So that's not, it shouldn't even be a question, right? So when we approach the scripture, why do we say you don't have to wear hats or veils or uncover your hair? Women, you can have short hair. Why do we make that assumption, but then make an assumption that isn't even there that women shouldn't preach or teach or prophesy, right? Because what's happening is we've become churches of man and not churches of God, right? We have followed the traditions and interpretations of man and not the traditions and interpretations of God. And that's what Paul is talking about. We all are sourced in God. The church comes from God. And that's who calls and that's who defines things. And that's why in our denomination and that's why in our church we say called and gifted by God. Because we're not going to idolize the traditions of man to defend some patriarchy or some sense of control and power over what God can do in a person's life. Amen? We worship God. Right? If Leo wants to stand up and start preaching because the Holy Spirit is on him, who's to say no? I mean, we might be like, what? But if God does it, we'll know, right? And don't put it away from God to be able to call whoever he wants, whenever he wants. Amen? Amen. There is no room for arrogance. We come from each other. But most importantly, we come from God as men and women. Mutuality and interdependence. The church comes out of God. The traditions of the church are sourced by God. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that we've stuck through this and we've um, been in your word. Um, I pray that a seed of subversion would continue to be grow in our hearts as we live out your kingdom um, honoring scripture honoring yes tradition but also honoring uh, the experience of your holy spirit um, and what you're doing afresh in us today in jesus name amen